Turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, the first, first book of the New Testament. Your copy of God's Word, it'll be about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. The Gospel of Matthew, we're in Matthew chapter 13 this morning. As we learned a couple weeks ago while you turn there, in Matthew 13 we have what is the third major discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. There's five major discourses in the Gospel, and this is the third of which, and, and the, the chapter 13 of, of Matthew contains eight different parables about the kingdom of heaven. And so you'll note this week as we start our parable, and we're looking at verses 24, beginning there, the parable of the weeds, all of the remaining parables in Matthew chapter 13 begin with this statement, the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of heaven might be, or it can be compared to. So they're all explaining the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think it's often a beneficial task for us to consider this question. Why is this passage necessary? Why did God in his wisdom and his grace and his kindness include this for us to read in this time? And we can, we can ask that question of any passage in the Scripture, of, of all that God might have revealed or could have revealed to us, why did He reveal what He did to us? And so why is it that this chapter is necessary? Why is it that Jesus found it necessary and, and, and the, the Spirit led Matthew by His power and grace to write down and record these eight parables in Matthew 13? Why is it that we need to consider and spend so much time thinking about what the kingdom of heaven is like? Well, I would contend to you it's because living in this world makes it difficult for us to see and understand the kingdom of heaven. We can, we can sometimes fall prey to the, the same thing, the same trap that Asaph did in Psalm 73. Some of you may remember Psalm 73. It's a longer psalm, but in that psalm, Asaph looks around and he sees all the, the wicked around him and he sees their prosperity and how well they're doing and he, and he starts to stumble. He struggles with that. And he looks and he says, I, I know that I'm supposed to live the way God's called me to live, but yet I look around and why are they prospering so? Why are the wicked prospering? We look around. We see that very thing. We look around. We, we see the, the prevalence of evil. We see the prevalence of, of wicked people doing things and saying things and teaching things contrary to the truth, propagating things in our land that are contrary to the Word of God. We look around and we even see and perhaps can observe what may seem to be the church shrinking. And so in light of this, we, we look and we say, if, if the kingdom of heaven is at hand, then why is all this going on? I mean, you understand that both John and Jesus, remember, Matthew 3, 2, we covered. Matthew 4, 17, we covered. John and Jesus come preaching the same exact message. Do you remember that message? Repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at hand. Now, if they come and, and they're preaching this, then how in the world can it be as it is if the kingdom of heaven is at hand? I, I would just remind you of our time. Remember, we looked at Matthew 6. In Matthew 6, we studied the Lord's Prayer. And as we study the Lord's Prayer, we, we have that teaching of our Lord to pray that, that the kingdom would come that His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we looked at that, we looked at Matthew 3, 2 and 4, 17, I, I reminded you and shared with you that the kingdom of heaven is indeed at hand at the coming of Christ. It is present, but it is not yet present in a physical manner. The kingdom of heaven was planted at the coming of Christ, I told you, but it will come to full undying bloom at His return. And so we understand that right now we live in what theologians would refer to as the already and not yet. That the kingdom of heaven is here, but it will be the future when he consummates, when he brings everything to restoration in Christ. That has not yet occurred. 
And so we live today longing for that day. Longing for that day. We sing to our King forever, Jesus, and we consider in those songs what it will be like that day when we stand in the presence of our King and we worship Him. We sing of the one gospel of Jesus Christ and we consider as we do what it will be like that that song will never grow old of declaring our praise to God and what He did in saving us in Jesus Christ. That our song will ever be thanks unto you for saving us by your grace. You are a great and a mighty King. So we worship and we sing unto Him. We long for that day. We await that day. And so our parable this morning answers an important question. The important question we think about the kingdom of heaven is this, is if the kingdom of heaven is at hand, then why are there so many wicked or unbelievers around and present among us? The, the Jew in that day when, when John comes and when Jesus comes and says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, would certainly have been going, wait a minute, if the kingdom of heaven is here, then why are the Romans still oppressing us, and, and why are there so many still opposed to you? Isn't it just, shouldn't it just be us, those who love you and worship you? What's going on? The same could be asked today. We proclaim the kingdom of heaven is here, that God is present among us, that God is doing a great work. The same question could be asked, well, why then do the wicked still seem to prosper? Why do the unbelievers still become so present if the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Let's read this parable and we'll consider more of that as far as the answer. So Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24, Jesus said this. As he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and, and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. And Jesus teaches this parable knowing that the story would make sense to the people. The, the question, though, would be, would it not only make sense, but would they understand it and how it applies to their lives? Would they understand the true meaning and relevance of it, Right? And so the, the parable itself made sense. In that time, there was a, a common weed known as darnel, and it, was, it would grow among wheat, and it, it looked very similar to weed. It, it wasn't uncommon in those times if there were, there were two farmers, and perhaps one of them was angry at another, he might send someone or even go himself at night and, and seed some darnel in the other man's crop to devalue it, and they wouldn't know about it until later on. It's the exact instance you have here where it was sown and, and, and it looked fine. Then the servants, they recognize it. They were out in the field and they see when it starts being evident that it's Darnell. They come to the master and say, Master, what's, what's going on? Now, we have the same exact thing here in Kentucky. In Kentucky, farmers caught ryegrass. Now, I don't know this because you can look at me and tell I'm probably not a farmer. But I have friends that are farmers. They tell me the same thing is present. It's called ryegrass. And ryegrass looks just like wheat when it's growing. You don't really see the difference. It's camouflaged. It looks the same. But what happens is when the wheat and the ryegrass begin to head, you see the difference. When it begins to bear fruit, when it begins to produce, you can tell the difference. And you can see the difference between the wheat and that which is weeds, 
right? And that's exactly what you have here in 13 verse 26. We read, so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Now, it wasn't as though all of a sudden the, the weeds just, boom, they just grew and they were there all of a sudden. They hadn't been there before. No, it's they appeared, they were revealed, they became evident at that point in time. And so they became apparent. It was the time of fruit bearing that the identity of the weeds became apparent. Now, this should sound somewhat familiar to you if you've been with us in our study of Matthew. Jesus talked about that in Matthew seven fifteen to 20 in the Sermon on the Mount. He talked about how he said, beware of false prophets. You will recognize them by their fruits. We also looked at it in Matthew 12. The tree is known by its fruit, right? This is a, a common understanding that we've gained and we've been reminded of as we've studied through Matthew, that, that those who are unbelievers, those who are, are wicked, they may look like a believer for a time being, right? It's easy to come in here, and, and I can't look across the auditorium this morning and go, oh, you're believer, unbeliever, believer, unbeliever. I can't do that, Right? We all come in and we all come looking like we're here to church or here for worship and you're all sitting there, you're all sitting there attentive and listening. But the fruit of lives shows the heart, right? The fruit reveals our true identity. The same is true here in this parable. When the grain begins to bear, then it becomes evident what it is. So this prompts the servants to ask two questions. Two questions in verse 27, the first question. How does your field have weeds? They know the master is a good master. And they know that he plants good seeds. And so the question makes sense. They, they know what he's going out. They know that he doesn't mix weeds and seeds all together and just plant them for the fun of it. And they, they say, why does your field have weeds? How, how did this happen? His answer is very blunt, very simple. He says, an enemy has done this. And so that leads to their second question. They say, okay, that's not what you intended. That's not what you, you went out. You didn't sow these weeds. So then if you didn't do it, if an enemy has done that, do you want us to come ga go gather them up? We can see which they are. You know, we'll just go rip them out of the ground and cast them away and destroy them. Should we pull them up? His answer here is important. The master says, No. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. See, the, the servants were quite short-sighted in this moment. The master understood the big picture. He understood the impact, the influence, what would happen if the, the weeds were just ripped out of the ground. It would be detrimental also to the wheat. He understood that while the servants did not. Now, if you look further down in Matthew 13, we're going to skip over verses 25 to 35 this week. We'll come to them next week because in verses 36 to 43, Jesus explains this parable. So we want to look at that this morning. So 13:36, we have Jesus' explanation of the parable. We read this from the Word of God. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, Jesus explains the, the parable, and he explains it showing that this parable is allegorical. The same way that he explained the, the parable of the sower. Now, we talked about a couple weeks ago, that does not mean that every parable is 
allegory. We have to be careful to discern and look at the, the purpose of the parable, why it was written, what is he using it, how is he using it to teach, even how does he explain it, how does he apply it. And so we have to be discerning of that to discern the purpose for which Jesus uses and teaches each parable. But in this parable, he, he explains that, that we see in verse 37 and 41 that both the sower and the harvester are the son of man. He explains in, in verse 39 that the enemy who sowed the weeds is the devil. And in verse 38, he makes an important statement for us. We understand and we interpret this parable. He says that the field is the world. Now, it's important to note this because uh, over the years, this parable has often been interpreted strictly about the church, as, as though the field is the church and that the church has, has, has wheat and weeds growing up in the midst of it. Well, Jesus says very explicitly here, the field is the world. He's speaking of the world. Now, we know and we, we understand that the, the church lives in the world. We're not of the world, but we do live in the world. So we're not necessarily immune to the reality that weeds, quote unquote, could come into the church. We're not immune to that. But what we have to understand is that the, inter the interpretation of the parable is not to be strictly interpreted as in the church. You know, a, a way to understand it, one, one theologian noted that this is a picture of the church in the world, not the world in the church. Okay? That helps clarify the purpose of the parable. In verses 39 to 43, Jesus explaining this is really the thrust, the end goal of why he gives the parable. It's eschatological in nature, which means it's, it's dealing with the end times. It's looking at what will happen in the end. It's teaching what we can look forward to, what will come at the end of the age. He says the harvest is the end of the age. And at that point, what will happen? The harvester, which is the Son of Man, Christ, will gather and burn the weeds. His angels will, will reap the weeds and they will be destroyed. Oh, but the righteous, look at what he says about the righteous. The righteous will shine forth. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of God. They will shine forth. And he concludes his explanation with a statement that we heard two weeks ago and we considered. He concludes his explanation by saying, He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. It's, again, as a reminder, it's Jesus saying, if you hear this, think upon it. Consider it. Don't just listen and move on. Don't just say, oh, I heard it and I'm done and I'm going. It's consider it. Think about it. Mull over it. What's the meaning of it? And not just what's the meaning of it, but what's the meaning of it in my life and how I apply it to my life? What it makes my life different as a result of hearing this teaching and this parable from Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so that question should be in front of us this morning. What does this parable mean for us? What might we learn from this parable of the weeds this morning? I would point out that when the when the disciples come to Jesus, they ask him, they don't say, hey, will you teach us of the parable of the wheat, right? They, te they ask, will you teach us the parable of the weeds? They understand that the, the primary focus is, is asking that question. Why are there weeds present? And what is their ultimate end? I believe this morning, I want to give you, I believe we can see four gleanings from the parable of the weeds, Four gleanings from the parable of the weeds. Yes, I said gleanings just because you glean your field, right? Gleanings from the parable of the weeds. The first one. Spiritual warfare is real. Spiritual warfare is real. Verses 25 to 28, and then again in verse 39, spiritual warfare is real. We should note how often Jesus speaks about the work of Satan. He doesn't, throughout the gospel, we, we just look in the gospels, Matthew 4 is a whole chapter that reveals and shows us, teaches us that Jesus was tempted by Satan. In Jesus 13, 19, we studied two weeks ago, it was Satan who was the evil one that snatched away the word sown on the hard-hearted hard, hard person. If you 
Look at Luke 22, 31 to 32. Jesus tells Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. In John 8, 44, when, when Jesus has the, the, the confrontation with the Pharisees, one of the most intense confrontations of the Pharisees. That, it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible just because you, you just see, I mean, Jesus is standing toe-to-toe and you really get the impression. I mean, he is very heated in that moment. And in that chapter, Jesus calls the devil a murderer and a liar. John 17, 15, when Jesus prays, what does he pray? He says, I do not ask, praying to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You keep them from the evil one. Jesus did not see Satan as some fictitious character running around with red horns and a pitchfork with a sinister laugh. Jesus understood that the devil was real, a fallen angel, a demon who was seeking to undermine God's great glory and plans and to bring harm to His creation. Yet many of us seem to have grown complacent about this. We seem to have grown even perhaps cynical of the presence and the work of Satan. The idea that spiritual warfare could be real. We just kind of shrug it off at best or really just act as though it doesn't exist. We pretend he doesn't exist. We pretend that he is not our great foe. We've been lulled to sleep over our adversary. But we need to be aware of our adversary's workings. The, the New Testament writers were aware. They made their appeals. You'll remember First Peter Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, 8, he said, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. He says, be watchful. Be alert. Don't be lulled to sleep. Don't be complacent. Don't act as though there's no adversary seeking to wreak havoc in your life, seeking to destroy you. Be alert. Or Paul in Ephesians 6, that great passage, the armor of God. Why are we called to put on the full armor of God? It's because of our battle that we have with the adversary. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggle. It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Spiritual warfare, friends, is real. It's real. We cannot live as though Satan does not exist. And specifically in this passage, in this parable, we find from our Lord teachings that one of the workings, one of the schemes of Satan is to sow or to plant or send out unbelievers who look like believers who would be camouflaged as believers. So we must be discerning. We must be alert. We must know the difference. And we must not be alarmed when those who early on seem to be a believer depart and turn out not to be so, just like ryegrass. We're not alarmed. We just understand what the reality is or was. Which leads us to the second gleaning in verse 25 to 26. That Christians live among unbelievers who may look like believers at first, but whose true identity will one day be revealed. Christians live among unbelievers who may look like believers at first, but whose true identity will one day be revealed. Listen, brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, we must not grow weary or troubled over the presence and the work of the unrighteous in this world. In due time, God will judge. You remember I mentioned Psalm 73 at the beginning of our time together. I mentioned that Asaph and that Psalm struggled with this idea that the unrighteous all around him were prospering. They were prevalent. They were everywhere. And it's in there. What brings what brings Asaph around? What opens his eyes? 
Well, in, in, in verse 16, he says, I thought how to understand this, and it seemed to me a wearisome task until, this is Psalm 73, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. Until I remembered what their end was. I, I was tempted. I, I, I couldn't wrap my head around it. Until I went into the presence of the Lord and He reminded me what the ultimate end of the unrighteous, of the wicked, of the unbeliever is. He was reminded that there would be a day in which God would come to judge. Or in the vernacular of Matthew 13, there would be a day of reaping that would come. And so despite the presence and the schemes of the wicked, God's people should have an unwavering confidence in Him and His plan. So despite what goes on, our confidence is in Him. God's told us that there are weeds among the wheat. He has told us also of their ultimate end. So we need not be worried. We need not be disheartened. We look to our Savior. In the end, there will be no mistaking who are weeds and who are wheat, who are unbelievers and who are believers. Verse 41 and 43 tell us that the weeds will be cast into hell and the believers will shine like the sun. It will be evident. It may not be as evident now, but it will be evident then. Our third gleaning this morning Verse 13 and 29, God in His providential wisdom allows the weeds to persist for the good of the wheat. God in His providential wisdom allows weeds to persist for the good of the wheat. Listen, what this means is that we have to trust the wisdom of God. We have to trust the wisdom of God in leaving Weeds among us. There's a purpose. And it's for the good of God's people. It's for the good of God's people. We know if you, if you just read the whole of Scripture and you, you study God's Word, we see time and time again that God uses difficulty to carry out and accomplish His purposes. He doesn't just eliminate every bit of difficulty from your life. I, I, somebody, I don't remember, it may have been one of you, told me this week there's a new term for, for pastors who eliminate, or not pastors, parents who eliminate all the difficulties in, in their children's life. You're a lawnmower parent. Used to be a helicopter parent. You're always hovering over your kids, trying to watch over them, watch over them. Well, the lawnmower parent is the parent who says, I don't want any difficulty to come upon my kids, so I'm just going to clear the way for them. Right? God is no lawnmower God. God, in fact, at times we see in Scripture, brings difficulty in front of us. And He walks us through that difficulty. And He uses it to conform us into the likeness of Christ, to sanctify us, to help us to grow in our relationship with Him. I mean, just, just think back. Consider the story of Joseph. How God used difficulty in Joseph's life in Genesis 37 to 50. And Joseph, at the end of the account, what does he say? What, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Or consider Romans chapter 9, verse 22, where God says and reveals to us through Paul, what if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And why would he do that? Well, he tells us. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And right, right there, it's a teaching that God shows patience towards unbelievers so that the riches of his glory may be known to believers. Or what about Romans 8.28? That's really the heart of that. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, all things. Difficult times work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. 
Here's what we can't forget. Satan may sow weeds, but he cannot destroy the wheat. He may sow weeds. He may seek to put unbelievers in the midst of God's people who would look like believers and try to undermine the health, the purposes of the church and the kingdom. But Satan can never destroy God's people. This is the importance of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 16, that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church will rise. And the church will stand. And the church will prevail. Not because it's the church, but because it is the Lord's church. Because the church's Savior is a mighty and an awesome and a powerful master and king. And so we need not fear. Christ will prevail. It's why we remind ourselves in song, who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? What will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Our fourth gleaning, verses 39 to 43, is that the final harvest will be glorious for believers and grievous for unbelievers. The final harvest will be glorious for believers and grievous for unbelievers. As I mentioned earlier, this is the, the real driving home, the, the great final point of the parable. It's at this point that the parable drives forward to, to direct our gaze on the end of the age, on, on the time ahead, on the result, the end of the path we are trotting. So what is the end of the path that you're walking? I, I've told you before that one of the greatest mistakes one can make is to live as though and to think that this is only or all that there is, that, that this life there is before us, that's all there is. That's a, a grave mistake that we would fail to consider eternity, that we would fail to consider what awaits us at the end of our days. When we stand before God, our Maker, we fail to think about that and consider what will it be like? What will I say? What plea can I make when I stand before my Maker? What plea will I make? I, I preached sermons. I went and made visits. I didn't do these things. And I did these things, I didn't say this, but I said this. Is that what my plea is going to be? It would be worthless. The only plea that you have before a holy God is in Christ alone I stand. That's it. That Jesus paid it all. It wasn't me. I didn't have anything to pay. There was nothing in my account. There was nothing I could give. I can't stand before my maker and say, well, here you go. All we can do is stand before our maker and say, Christ is my hope in life and death. And I stand upon him in his righteousness. I stand. We have to think about that time. We have to think about that day. And the, the writer of Hebrews reminded us that in Hebrews 9.27, where he says, It is appointed to man that he die once and then face judgment. Paul reminded the same thing in Romans 14, verses 10 to 13. Paul says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I 
it doesn't matter whether you're a believer or you're an unbeliever. We will all die and we will all stand before God and give account. It's the reality. It's the truth. But what this parable teaches us is that day will look different for a believer and an unbeliever. It will look different. So for believers in verse 43... We see that when Jesus brings forth the harvest, we read that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Where, where will they shine like the sun? It's not a trick. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. In heaven. We will be in the presence of God Almighty. It's the, the great beauty, the great certainty, the great hope of eternal life in heaven with Christ, with God for the believer. This is the, the beautiful truth that Jesus spoke of to the disciples in John 14, 1-3. When he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Oh, what a, what a beautiful promise from our Lord. That He's gone to prepare a place for those who are His. For those who follow Christ, He's gone to prepare a place and He is going to take us there. Why? That we might be with Him. That where He is, we may be also. Believers, take comfort. Take comfort. Our Lord will one day bring all to completion. The harvest will be finished and we will stand in the presence of our King. We will shine forth like the sun. Heaven is real, and we will one day be united with Jesus. That is a beautiful truth. And what it means is as believers, we should be living with one eye on that. That we understand and we see what's going on around us. We see the world. We see opportunities. We see the calling to live for God's glory. But as we do that, as we live our lives for Christ, we live so with one eye focused on the prize, that we live focused on eternity, that we don't live as though eternity doesn't exist. We don't live as though it's not a reality for us and for those around us. We live with one eye focused on Christ and focused on him. It's the reason that Peter writes. He writes his first letter. And when he writes that letter, the people are going through suffering. They're going through these intense trials and difficulty. And it's just going to get worse. And so Peter writes, and where does he start? Does he start with the situation? Does he start with how bad everything is? No. He starts with the gospel. He starts with Christ. And he says, thanks be to God who in his great mercy caused us to be born again. To be born again to what? To be born again unto living hope. Living hope. And he goes on and, and he, he writes to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. He writes to these people suffering. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do You see what Peter's doing? He's reminding them that they are in Christ. They are believers. They are his and in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the trial, don't forget your inheritance. Don't forget your inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Don't forget the hope you possess, believers. Brothers and sisters in Christ, don't forget. Don't lose hope in whose you are. Don't lose hope. 
It will be revealed in the last time, Peter says. And he says, you know what, though you may go through some difficulty now, there is going to be a great and a glorious day, and that is going to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he returns, it is going to be a great and a glorious day, and we must not lose sight of that. Believers, you know how the story ends. You know how the story ends. Christ wins, and we cannot lose sight of that. Believers, you will shine forth like the sun. The sun bursts forth through the clouds on that field ripe for harvest. And the gleaming beauty and splendor of all those heads of wheat. It's a beautiful sight to behold, isn't it? Have you ever driven through Nancy on a day like that? Believers, there will be that day when we shine forth like the sun. But there's an important word here for unbelievers as well. Verses 40 to 42. Unbelievers, those of you who gather today or sitting here today, you've never trusted Christ, you've never repented, turned from your sins and trusted Christ, this passage serves as a warning to you. It's a warning to wake from your slumber, to hear the teaching and to understand and apply it. It's a warning to wake up. There will be an end, and at that end there will be a day of judgment, and at that day of judgment, those who are not in Christ, it is not a good day. See, Jesus, the, the Son of Man, will send His angels to gather the weeds, and it says, cast them into the fire. This terminology is not unique to what Jesus says in Matthew 13. Revelation 20, verse 15. Jesus revealed to John, he said, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Or 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 9, where we read when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Matthew 25, verse 41, the Lord speaks to the unbelievers in the end and Jesus says, this is what will be said to the unbeliever. Look upon them and say, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. A side note, we'll cover this in the summer a little more in depth, but I just would point out, when he says, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, is prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not prepared by him. This is hard for our modern ears to hear, isn't it? This, for many of you, is difficult to hear because we've been so conditioned to this God is love. He's only loving. He's just a loving God. He's loving, he's loving, he's loving. And that's all you hear. That's all that's proclaimed. That's all that's taught. Well, that's true. God is loving. 1 John says very clear, God is love. I mean, the Scripture is littered with demonstrations of God's love towards His creation, towards His people in particular. The cross was the supreme demonstration of God's love. The cross was also a supreme demonstration of His wrath. There must be punishment for sin. The whole idea that God is loving, that God is loved, does not negate the reality that God is holy and He will execute righteous, holy wrath. We can't toss that out. We can't ignore it. You may be good with this loving, gracious, forgiving God. I mean, who wouldn't be, right? And maybe it bothers you to say, well, 
God would punish? I mean, God would take the, the weeds, the, the rye grass, and the unbeliever and just cast them into the fire? How could a loving God do that? Because God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. He is gracious. He's merciful. He's good. It doesn't negate His holiness. And so I, I would plead to you, unbeliever, take heed of the warnings from Jesus. Take heed. Open your eyes. Believe the Word of God more than you would a popular author or the teachings, the ideas of man that, that God is just love and, and love wins and you're just going to go to heaven. Everybody's going to go to heaven. It's all good. And, and you can be an unbeliever and live like an utter pagan and never trust Christ. And then we can gather for a funeral and go, oh yeah, I'll see him again up there one day with the big man. No. No. That's not the testimony of Scripture. It's not what God's Word says. God's word draws a very clear line. And I would contend to you that a God who is only loving and is not holy is a God that is not deserving of worship. But thanks be to God that the God of Scripture, the true God, the real God, is holy and loving. He is just and merciful. He demonstrates grace and extends grace. And he does execute wrath and punishment. In verse 13 or verse 41, it says, All causes of sin are stumbling blocks, and all lawbreakers or sinners will be thrown into a fiery furnace. It's the reality of Romans 6:23. The wages of sin is death. The way we live is important. And that fiery furnace is described as what? A place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, something that's not unique here. It's something that Jesus says time and time again to get the point across. This is not a good place. It isn't somebody, somewhere that you're just like, oh, well, it's no big deal. I guess I'm just going to go to hell. No worries. Can't be too much worse than here. No. There's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 8, 12, you'll be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 13, 50, we just, we're, we'll read later, throwing them into the fiery furnace. In that place, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, 13, cast them into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 24, 51, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 30, cast the worthless servant into outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth unbeliever wait no more wait no more don't delay don't wait wake up realize what the end is of the path you're walking realize what the consequence is please wake up if you have ears please hear today Please. And I would just tell you this, that there is good news that is greater than any bad news there is. There is good news. The, the early church father, Augustine, reminds us of a beautiful truth. He says this, he says, those who are tares or weeds today may be wheat tomorrow. Those who are weeds today may be wheat tomorrow. There, there's nothing you can do. You are who you are. A weed is a weed. There's nothing you can do. However, what Augustine's saying and what the teaching of Scripture is, is that God has the power to change your life. God has the power to take a weed and turn him into wheat. He has the power. He showed this power. He demonstrated that power in the fact that he created all things out of nothing. He created. He is the creator. He demonstrated that power when he takes Lazarus, who is dead in a grave for four days, and he calls him out of the grave to life. He demonstrates that power when he is in the grave for three days, and he raises again to life. He is powerful, and he can change your life. He has the power to do what you cannot do and what I cannot do. He has the power to make all 
things new. All things new. So it's 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, the work of God. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. Jeremiah in 13.23, he, he asked a question. He says, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard his spots? It's a rhetorical question. No, of course not. You can't. He says, neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. We can't just change ourselves on our own. If I, I wake up in the, as an unbeliever, I wake up one day and go, you know, I'm just going to be a good person from here on out. And for a time being, it doesn't last. I'm still sinful in my core. And even if I woke up that morning and I could be good from there on out, it doesn't pay for the sin that preceded. You need Christ. Unbeliever, this parable warns of the outcome of your life if you continue in your sin. He who has the ears, let him hear. Repent. Turn from your sins. Trust Christ today. Would you trust Christ in faith today? Believers, we have much to celebrate. We have much to worship our God for. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to stand and we're going to sing. And we're going to rejoice. Looking forward that we will feast in the house of Zion. And the invitation for unbelievers is that would you turn from your sin and trust Christ in faith that you can stand and this isn't just a song you just sing and say the words to, but you would stand and you would rejoice in the truth and the reality of looking forward to the day that we gather with all of God's people before the King and we worship and we feast in the house of Zion. Let's pray and then we'll stand and we'll sing.